0: Welcome to Notes on Vulnerability, a podcast designed to put stories of resilience, courage and being human at the heart of the conversation. This is the Tools for Resilience series, wellness and mental health chats focused on helping you grow and feel good about who you are. We'll be exploring ideas and practical tools designed to help you get comfortable with the vulnerability inherent in being human and the benefits of embracing it. And we'll reveal ways that working with this vulnerability builds resilience so that you can deepen your resources, adapt more, bounce back better and go on to thrive. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button for the extra bonus content. No one wants to talk about the menopause or the perimenopause for that matter. That's certainly how it's felt for most of my adult life and maybe yours too. It's really only in the past year or so that it has started to seem like a less embarrassing secret that no one wants to hear about. But because there's been such an aversion to talking about it we don't have a lot of information about the menopause and it's always the things we don't talk about that tend to make us feel the most vulnerable. Thankfully things are changing. There's certainly more information now than there was before Davina tackled the topic but what's still missing from the discussion is things like how different it's going to be for everyone what's likely to happen emotionally for example to any unprocessed trauma that you've got and why some women actually find it one of the most liberating moments in life. I could hurl all sorts of statistics at you, but here's the big one. This affects half the population. But to put it bluntly, it's not the half of the population that has historically held all the power and the purse strings, which is why we are where we are. This episode is all about reframing the menopause, and my guest is exactly the right person for the job. Dr Mandy Leonhardt is a GP and a menopause specialist, and the co-author of The Complete Guide to POI and Early Menopause. In her practice, she specialises in the holistic assessment and individualised treatment of hormonal imbalances at every stage of a woman's life. Mandy takes an evidence-based approach to the advice that she provides to women, which is designed to be individual, incorporating the best of the available options out there, whether that's nutrition and supplements or hormone replacement therapy. The menopause doesn't have to feel like an area of vulnerability anymore. The knowledge, information and understanding that we can now acquire about it can give us all the tools for resilience that we need to navigate it differently. So Mandy, welcome. Thank you, Alex. So just to kick off, can you tell us a bit more about who you are and how you came to this? So
1: I'm a a GP. I studied um, originally, I'm from Germany where I did my medical school training and then I came to the UK as a junior doctor and I studied in various medical disciplines and then uh, trained as a GP. And um, I worked for as a, as a GP for many years and I found that as a female GP, I would see more women's health related issues um, because women sometimes are more comfortable to speak to a female doctor. And I found that um, my own knowledge about this was not really that great in some areas, for example, menopause as well. I didn't quite know what HRT was, how Well, I knew what it was, but how because many women, when you give them something, they don't all respond in the same way. And I found I need to know more about that. And also, I had my own personal experience with certain hormonal issues. And so I started reading about this. I did further training. I trained with the British Menopause Society. And then I got very passionate about helping women through this life stage, uh, perimenopause and menopause. And so I started my own clinic. So I mean, given that the menopause
0: isn't something new, why has it only been in the past few years that there's been more information in the
1: mainstream about it? That's an interesting question. I think one of the reasons um, is that women, we have, we, we realise that we live longer. We do not live longer in terms of the lifespan we had was always there. We women. Uh, from pretty much the stone Age time in theory, genetically could have lived up till eighty if they had not been killed by dangerous animals, for example, so lifespan is genetically determined. health span is something different, so we have much better health span um, over the last fifty years. Our health span has increased, so our health care has increased. The treatment for cancer we are not you know being killed by dangerous um, diseases anymore unless it it is COVID of course a pandemic but um, we we have a much higher probability to survive beyond our reproductive years so um, previously women would very much have a higher chance of dying during childbirth and since that has improved we have a chance to actually live a long, long life. Um, so on average, we live now 30 years, we spend in a post-track productive stage, which means that on average in the UK, if a woman is reaches really menopause at age 50, she lives up till 80, she'll spend a third, 30 years of her lifespan in menopause. And we have expectations about our quality of life not only because we want to feel well but also we have responsibilities we have jobs we have to make a living we have to look after elderly parents we we are carers for other people for our children we have children later who are more dependent for longer on us so we I think women have realized how how much more the demand is on on their their life and that we do not just keel over and die at 50 you know as, as life expectancy was maybe 150 years ago so we want the best possible quality of life during that lifespan because why would we need why would we suddenly accept that we no longer feel well and function in the jobs we love and look after the family and enjoy things only because we are now being menopausal. So I think there have been, the reason going back to your questions, why is STEM awareness? Well, it's really down to a few campaigners, some a number of brave women who noticed this, who have had horrific experiences themselves. And I think it's all based on what individual women go through, then realizing what they go through, talking to other women, reflecting on it and and that you just need one brave woman to stand up and say it's not just me it's it's lots of other women we need to, to make a change so you just need one person to make a change and there was for example there's a campaigner called diane danesbrink she collected 170,000 signatures for par- through parliament um to to campaign in parliament for um a education awareness she succeeded in getting menopause as a topic onto the school curriculum that's just a grassroots movement of one that one woman started a few years ago then we have doctors we have we have um, health professionals who start talking more about it we have the celebrity culture who started opening up and not always for altruistic reasons but every everyone who comes forward and talks about her own her own experience helps to Keep the momentum going. So, I think what started with the grassroots movement has now had a knock on effect into mainstream. But we mustn't forget that it is also now has become a massive industry. There's money in it. Women have paying power, right? So, there are products to sell. And this is another knock on effect. We could probably spend a whole podcast on just talking about the financial implication of menopause, women leaving the workplace because they can't cope. Um, but equally women willing to spend money on treatment. Um, So it is, it is, I think, but going back to your question, I believe it started with a grassroots movement and the awareness spread through the society and filtered through this, through media, through social media. And remember 10 years ago, we didn't have Instagram, you know? (laughs) So I think social media played a massive role and it can be good and bad as anything.
0: So in terms of... I mean, social media is a great place for spreading narratives and picking up narratives, but what do you think are the most unhelpful narratives around the menopause and the perimenopause?
1: Well, the idea that we're all the same, we should all go on HRT, uh, we should all make the same changes because we all face the same problem. In theory, we are facing the same problem. And the problem is our ovaries are not no longer working as efficiently and, and eventually they stop working altogether. This is something that affects every single woman, but the impact is very, very individual. And we have to look individually at how it affects each woman. And this is what makes it so complicated. We all united in essence, because we are facing this menopause, every single woman who lives long enough will be menopause at some stage, but the treatment needs to be individualized. And um, there are, we, we mustn't call it, I think, a deficiency. There have been opponents to to this new idea that we need to call reframe menopause as an estrogen deficiency, and you know there are quite rightly voices saying, "I don't want to be called deficient only because then I have less estrogen than 20 years ago. I'm not. It's not a deficiency status. I'm happy and healthy. I'm not on HRT, and this is this is no woman should justify not to seek treatment if she feels well." Equally, no woman should be judged because she does seek help and goes on HRT. And I think social media, depending on who's posting, on what their attitude towards is, what they try to sell. (laughs) So if you are a menopause doctor with a massive clinic, you may want to push the HRT narrative as the magic one for all evil, which it isn't by the way. And if you are an exercise person and you want to attract private clients for you, as a personal trainer, you may want to say, well, exercise is the best treatment. I think at the end of the day, there's no single truth that is, you, you know, there are different approaches and no single magic wand. Uh, life is complicated and so is menopause. And there is no single 100% magic treatment for this. It's a combination of things,
0: usually, you know. I absolutely hate the idea of calling it a deficiency. Um, and like, I mean, I'm I'm, not going through it, but it, for me, like, it, in a way, like if, I think if we had a different cultural makeup, it might be something we celebrated as the evolution of an amazing sort of reproductive system in a way that starts when we're young and takes us on this journey, which is, as you say, different for everyone. Um, so one of the questions that I put out on Instagram before this podcast was, um, I put a question box on Instagram before this podcast and I asked people what their biggest questions about it were. Um, and the one that just kept coming up for both perimenopause and menopause was how do I know it's actually happening? Um, and I know that everyone's different, but can you provide a bit of insight on that?
1: Yes, of course. Um, So typically, um, when we talk about a previously healthy woman with no underlying health conditions um, that have previously affected her ovaries and fertility issues and um, other early menopause, so we know statistically from the age 40 onwards, our ovaries are less effective in what they're doing. So our ovaries... Um, are are controlled by the brain. The brain controls the menstrual cycle. Our ovaries are listening to the brain. They make hormones, including progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone. In that process of during the menstrual cycle, you ideally ovulate mid-cycle, then you release the eggs, which is ovulation. And then in that process, you make different hormones. Now, this ovulation process Becomes less and less effective. So, what I'm trying to say is that, that women have seen more and more what we call unovulatory cycles. So, the quality of the eggs in our ovaries d- deteriorates with age, sadly. It is what it is. We are meant to have our babies in our 20s and not in our 40s, but we can still have babies in our 40s. But it just is that much harder to conceive, for example, so because we do not release an egg each month. Now, these unovulatory cycles. Result in making less, make them, releasing hormones in a less effective way. So you end up with having more fluctuations. One month you may make some hormones, or, and then they come crashing down, and then you make none, and then you try again. Nature is very keen on um, so the biological drive for reproducing is, to, is one of the strongest drives, other than avoiding death. <laughs> so the ovaries do not give up without the fight. Um, so they will really try hard to ovulate. And when it fails, hormones change again. So you lose that rhythmic menstrual cycle uh, pattern that you pr- may have previously had. And this comes with severe fluctuations of particularly estradiol, which is a, a very powerful hormone and a no- neurotransmitter, also the loss of progesterone if you do not ovulate you do not make progesterone for example so this is the biology behind it but we must be so what what the impact of that is is that these neuro these um sex hormones estrogen for example estradiol and progesterone are also neurotransmitters in the brain so they do not just have an impact on bleeding or on on energy but they actually they work, they interact in the brain with other neurotransmitters. So they interact with dopamine that gives us motivation with mood. They interact with um, GABA, which controls the the, the relaxation processes. So the first thing what women may notice is initially they feel more anxious. They cannot sleep. Their quality of sleep deteriorates. They are less stress resilient. So they have a work... And they have a deadlines at work and they suddenly can't cope with all the tasks they've been given. They um, are more snappy, more irritable. So initially it's the mental health side of things I think that they notice. And later on, they will also notice that their periods become irregular, either closer together and heavier in the initial stages. And then later, a little further apart, they will start skipping periods. They will eventually stop them. but this can drag on for 10 years or longer this perimenopausal stage which is the which is the inefficiency ineffic- of your ovarian function from the early stages to later on stopping your periods can drag on for a long time and as you said symptoms are different for each woman but one of the most common most debilitating symptoms in my experience initially sleep sleeping sleep problems um, so women who had previously had very good sleep now cannot sleep, um, not being able to relax, feeling wired and tired, not being able to switch off, um, but also physical symptoms. But I think when it comes to resilience, which is your, what, what is your podcast is about, it's, it's, it's more about the mental health side of things and the stress resilience and the not feeling the confidence, lack of confidence and the anxiety that can make a very assertive woman feel very insecure certainly for no reason and that is debilitating because you lose control right mm. previously it, it's the menstrual cycle gave you a sense of control you could predict what happened provided you were not on the contraceptive pill or something else, or not pregnant you had a way to tell yeah I'm ovulating. I feel great, confident. I'm up for anything today, and then you feel a little bit low and maybe a little bit more vulnerable. And you know, you look at your diary and you check. Oh yeah, it's the week before my period. This is normal. I can I can live with that because next month it gets better, right? And suddenly you lose that. It becomes unpredictable, and no one knows for how long that will go on for. And this is very difficult to live with. <laughs> so. This, these are the things that women face for a long time span. The trouble is that
0: those symptoms could also be attributable, attributable to other things, couldn't they?
1: Yeah. So it's kind of. Got, got, that's the, an excellent point. So women blame other things. They will come to me and they say, you know what, I don't know if it's my paramenopause, but lately I've been snappy, I've been irritable, I haven't got any patience anymore, I've lost my mojo. I can't enjoy things am i depressed is it because i'm working too hard is it because i'm not eating well it, why why is it happening and you know what it's probably a combination of all of all of this because ovaries are vulnerable it's a vulnerable time for women and any added added extra stress any added loss of self-care any over exercising or any other extra non-optimal stress that gets thrown on you will exacerbate these fluctuations that your ovaries are already doing You know, alcohol, but also other underlying health conditions like thyroid problems or any other underlying health uh, mental health conditions. So if a woman has already underlying anxiety disorder, these things that she may have been able to control previously quite well with her coping skills are now exacerbated again. Old trauma comes to the surface, childhood trauma. I have women who have to start therapy because childhood abuse comes back during that time. It is a time of change and reflection and recalibration, and it's hugely stressful, particularly on the brain. It's the brain that is the, the, the organ that is mainly affected by this, because it is like going through puberty backwards. And look at what teenagers do. They have, they're vulnerable, they have mental health problems, they have sleep disruption, they have circadian rhythm disruption, and this is what, it is very similar, this but you obviously now uh, have the wisdom of living, having lived uh, a considerable time longer, so you have the maturity as a as an older woman compared to when you were 15 to 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 do something about this. You know, this is what we need to utilize our our skills to to um, to um, improve this. It's 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 not shameful to go through this because we all will, but um, some women do cook better than others.
0: I think the shame thing is quite interesting because um, I, when I mentioned it earlier, I noticed that I immediately said, "Well, I'm not menopausal," like because there is definitely there are a lot. There's a lot of stuff, and I, I have a lot of friends who don't even want to think about it, and they're coming up to the age where you know maybe we should be thinking about it, um, but they absolutely don't want to, and and it seems to be because of this narrative that you change into something that society no longer wants or
1: needs? Or what do you think it is that creates this sense of shame? Because, well, culturally, we have to look at what the value of a woman is to fi- what's the definition of the value of a female person, you know, and that was always defined by her ability to reproduce, to, to create a new hum- human life by giving birth. Right. So am um, I just the book I've just done with my colleague, Hannah Short, we talk about it's about early menopause. So if, let's say you're 15 and you've got POI, premature ovarian insufficiency, you will never have a child. You're menopause from the the start. So this girl, even if she finds a boyfriend, if she goes out dating, will always be defined by her inability of not being able to produce a child. And this will limit her relationships from the start, because there will be men who will not go out with a woman who cannot have a baby, yeah? So this, this we, we have always, our reproductive um, um, opportunities are, have always defined us in, in many ways, because it always makes us vulnerable. The female life cycle is defined by our ability to become pregnant. And pregnancy is a stage of vulnerability post-pregnancy is a state of vulnerability we're then tied to a child we lose our independence to some extent we're dependent on others to to feed us to look after us if we don't do that we are immediately bad mothers yes yeah? so if we leave the kid in the nursery go back to work and, you know we're bad mothers if we hang on too long onto the kid we are we are overwhelming the kid with love and molly it whatever as a female we do in our role um it's always defined through our reproductive um, biology. So that's losing that. So I have women who say, I've got three children, I'm happy, I mm-hmm. do not want more children, but I am mourning my fertility. I, I mourn the not having the option to have another child. So they have to let go. The, some women are very maternal um, women, the creatures, and they have to let go of the idea that they could theoretically have another child, even if they never wanted.
0: I have to say i have a lot I have a lot of resistance to the idea that that women are defined by our ability to reproduce, and I mm-hmm. think that might be part of the problem around the social conditioning side of it, because we are I haven't had children, and the idea that that's all I'm good for um is quite. Obviously, I've got a lot of resistance to that because I feel like I contribute a lot more (laughs) to society.
1: Yes, and you're quite right. And this is the the key point. So we have to create a new narrative. And there's actually from an evolutionary biology point of view, there's the grandmother theory. And the grandmother theory says, because why would nature, why, if we are destined to live up to 80 from our genetic potential point of view, why do we stop reproducing? Why do we not just go on and on and on and have children? like many many animals do in the animal kingdom most uh, animals die um of f- whatever well, reason but they they, st- they keep reproducing until they're dead and we are very few creatures we're amongst very few creatures um, um, including killer whales maybe giraffes um, but but not so there are some some mammals that do stop reproducing and um, biologists have have investigated this and thought, why is this happening? So whales, for example, certain whale species are maternal, matriarchal social groups. So the oldest female would lead the pot. She has the wisdom. She knows where the best food sources are. If she kept reproducing, she would always be busy um looking after her own offspring but if she stops reproducing she's liberated she's freed up she can now look after the offspring of her offspring so she can lead her daughters and sons and grandchildren around the world lead the pod keep them safe feed them and look after them because they live a long life and they are incredibly intelligent creatures they communicate and, and um so the grandmother theory is is an interesting point where we are meant to stop reproducing and find a new role for us within society, which is incredibly valuable um, because our wisdom has value and we should pass it on. Um, and we can't do that if we constantly have a kid hanging from it, you know, and we would be worn out. But um, I think women need to be aware. And sadly, this is not reflected in society because what happens to women when they're in their mid-50s and they have menopause and they suddenly can't, lose their resilience they can't cope giving a talk in front of 400 people because of anxiety they step back they go part-time or give up their job altogether why do we not see more women in leading positions you know why not in politics and in, in economy you know we need to give women opportunities because they have so much wisdom to pass on they have gone through adversity yeah. and why now do they have to scale back because of a condition that is not supported
0: This is a kind of a whole other podcast about the (laughs) patriarchy, equality in society. You know, you can't help thinking that if this was, if men went through the menopause, we'd have so much more in place than we currently do. Um, But to move on from that slightly. So there are so many options out there when it comes to tackling the menopause, um, HRT, naturals, you know, diet, exercise. Where do you think people should start with trying to whittle down the right ones for them?
1: the first point that anyone should look at is lifestyle is no is an absolute no brainer costs nothing and it can make a huge impact so the first thing i always tell to every single woman stop drinking alcohol alcohol is a is a um, an endocrine disruptor that really messes with your brain and you're in that vulnerable stage where your brain is, doesn't know whether it's coming or going really having to work hard responding to a constant change of uh hormones. So stop alcohol. It's an absolute no brainer It increases risk of breast cancer, it makes you depressed, it, it, it interacts with your sleep. There's no benefit in alcohol. It's empty calories. It makes you gain weight. So just I, I could go on about alcohol, but let's just cut the line here and say don't drink anything. Yeah, no alcohol whatsoever, not even a little bit. You want to be in the zone and relax. Find other ways to relax. Alcohol is not your friend. So that's number one. Number two, exercise always helpful but then if you are particularly stressed and you don't sleep there's a risk of pushing yourself too hard going for this five mile run over exercising maybe adapt your exercise to your stress level so there's nothing wrong with doing a bit of yoga some strength training something that just 20 minutes that doesn't stress you out more there's no reason to be competitive about this do some strength training every little helps you do not have to be competitive about this. Some women are very driven and they think if I don't go for my run three times a week, I'm I'm losing out. If that's what keeps you going, if that's if you feel well and recover easily after you run, go running. If it takes you three days to not to stop feeling achy after you run and you're fatigued and tired, if it doesn't give you energy, adapt your exercise, do smaller, smaller portions of it, maybe get a personal trainer, assess what you need to do, maybe exercise according to your menstrual cycle, you know, do a bit of yoga, a mixture of things. Um, So this is really important. And the third thing is find ways to relax, find ways to manage stress, get rid of optimal stress. And there's non-optimal stress that you cannot opt out of um, um, optional stress that you cannot opt out from, you have to go to work and so on, but learn to say no, set boundaries. This is the time. If you never learned it before to say no, This is the time where you must learn to say no. And and if someone gives you something to do and you say, no, sorry, find somewhere else. I haven't got the capacity to take this on. You do not need to justify anything to anyone. If you can't do it, if you don't want to do it, if you deep down know, it will break you. Say no, right? The world will go on. (laughs) So I think these are the three most important things you have to look at. And just a little
0: point for anyone who decides to start Saying no and setting boundaries—it never feels good to set boundaries, but that doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. <laughs> yes. Um, so, what would you say is the most important thing for anyone to do in terms of being better prepared for the menopause?
1: The key is, I, in my view, is tracking your cycle. So, provided you are not on uh, um, the birth control pill or contro- hormonal contraception, which makes it harder because your cycles are not natural. You may have the Marina coil that stops from bleeding, so you can't really tell where you're on the cycle. Um, then you can t- track your symptoms. So don't get too fixated on it, but maybe keep a little diary, not even an app, they take your data and sell it. So just a piece of paper, a notebook, track your symptoms. If you have a cycle, track the cycle length, write down when's your first day of your last period. Maybe write down a few symptoms that you experienced in the week before or during your period, or so that you can identify, is this what you're experiencing to do and connect it with your menstrual cycle or not? So cycle tracking is important. um, And and that is one of the key uh, identifiable um, and and, and free solutions to um, find out whether it is, your symptoms are related to the menstrual cycle. Um, So yeah, track your cycle.
0: (laughs) I like that because that's very easy to do on a personal level. Completely, Yeah. yeah. Don't have to start spending a fortune on things um so what about someone who's already going through the menopause or thinks they might be Where, what's the first port of call
1: so you mean so going through it so the, just to clarify menopause it's not a process you go through and then you come out the other end menopause is really just by definition your last period you cannot predict when that is so we if we use the, the proper terminology you would have to call a woman who no longer has periods post-menopausal so okay. you're postmenopausal if over the age of fifty you haven't had a period for twelve months. Now she has no estrogen, and for her the the crucial things that are starting now, the risks that are now increasing, is bone health, um, cardiovascular health, and brain health. So she needs to focus on these three things, I think, with exercise, eating a healthy diet that includes omega three, magnesium is important. Um, exercise is important, of course, not smoking or drinking. So if she has ongoing menopausal symptoms, so she her period is finished, she's happy about that, hey, liberation is nice, one of the very few benefits. And she has ongoing symptoms, and she has done all the lifestyle steps, so she's eating well, she tries to exercise. But let's say she still can't sleep, and I see women who haven't slept for years, and it's really debilitating. That will not go away. So very likely she will suddenly and um, start sleeping again, I would say, see, see your GP, tell them about your symptoms, say, I think these are menopause symptoms, there are questionnaires you can do online, you can print them out, there's the green, um scale uh, menopause questionnaire, they're all free, there's um, Louise Newsom uh, it's a menopause doctor, she's got lots of free resources, it's so hard to find a menopause questionnaire that you can fill in, if you, did, and you take that um, to the GP and say I think I've got menopause symptoms that have been very debilitating affect my quality of life I've done all the right lifestyle steps that I think I should be doing it hasn't improved can I do anything else and then you can discuss HRT for example
0: and I think at the moment like because there has been so much more discussion
1: about it it should be easier to get someone to take you seriously yes absolutely um GPs they have there are a few GPs that are still, um, far few, you know, that, that, that still have sort of negative ideas about HRT, because mainly because these are based, these ideas are based on, a, on the WHI study from 2002 that showed an increased breast cancer risk with certain types of HRT. We have better types of HRT now that have a much lower breast cancer risk and um, that are safer to use in terms of blood clot risk. So most GPs that I know are now switched on to know that breasted armadies is a good option to start with micronized progesterone. And you start somewhere, you try something first and just to see how do you respond? Does it work for you? And then you may have to tweak it a little bit. I I believe that in the past, we have had these problems that GPs would offer as a first-line treatment antidepressants. So you would would be going to your doctor and say, I feel more anxious, I'm not sleeping. My mental cycle is very erratic. And then you would be offered antidepressants. They are not the first-line treatment for these problems in a woman, let's say in in her late forties, they should not be given. There's no reason to stop an antidepressant if you're on it. And there are some women who will need both HRT and antidepressants. There's nothing wrong with being on an antidepressant, but if most women will say they're not depressed, they just don't function as well as they used to. So my first line treatment recommendation is HRT first. And most GPs will know what to prescribe first. There's nothing, no right or wrong with regards to what you try, um, but not you shouldn't give up. So if the first uh, thing you try doesn't work, try something else, change the dose, change the route. There are many, many ways to personalize HRT nowadays where you adjust the dose to the woman's individual response. You know, Some women need a bit more, you shouldn't. Other women need a bit less. So you start low increase the dose slowly and titrate it up and kind of wait for the response Um, and this is the way we do this now there's it's not a magic wand as I said it can take up to three to six months to settle on these hormones because depending on where you are in the stages of perimenopause and menopause and some women will find it transformative and other women in the worst case do not get on but it's always worth trying and worth persevering Uh, Before you give up, um, because there are many benefits to it. But as I said, also, not every woman needs to go on HRT. Yeah,
0: and there are lots of other options available for those that don't want to. Um, Right, just to what I normally do to finish these podcasts is ask you for your note on vulnerability. So that's the one thing that you want people to take away from listening to what we've talked about today.
1: First of all, I would say vulnerability is not a weakness. Um, It is just a life stage and you accept it. Do not let it take over your life, but recognize it, accept it and work with it. So detach yourself a little bit. Same with anxiety. Um, It makes you feel incredibly vulnerable. If you feel all uptight and your breathing goes up and your heart rate, it feels uncomfortable. Acknowledge it feels uncomfortable. Stay with it breathe through this and then possibly distract yourself, find ways of um, accepting it, seeing it as a life stage that will improve, seek help as well, Um, doing breath work. And, but I think you cannot, you cannot, it will get worse if you avoid it. So it's important to accept it and acknowledge it. Being vulnerable is not shameful. It's not a weakness. We are all vulnerable. All of us are. And it will not go away. <laughs> so um, it is perfectly reasonable to step back and de slow down, you know, slow down first and check what's going on. Reassess your life, your relationships, your eating habits, your life, you know, your exercise. Re- make a reassessment. Take that time. Do not be ashamed about taking time for yourself. Your body is, is precious. And, It has served you well, and there's no reason why it shouldn't serve you well in the future. But just um, don't be harsh on yourself when you can't can't function the way you expect to. And this is normal. We we are not robots. Well, thank you very much for that. That's been a really interesting chat. It was a pleasure, Alex, and um, I hope that people will find it useful.
0: This has been Notes on Vulnerability, and I've been Alex, your host. If you especially enjoyed this topic and would like to go deeper into how to take action on it, don't forget that you can hit the subscribe button to access all the additional tips, ideas and support. I'm a resilience coach and you can find me on Instagram at alexshorecoaching, S-H-O-R-E, or online at www.shore-coaching.com. Notes on Vulnerability also has its own Instagram, at notes on vulnerability.